When I was growing up, my teacher used to send home conduct folders every week. Get my conduct folder and in the comment section, she would always write, talks too much. And my mother would be my, ah, you know what? I learned and I've come to understand. It's just my gift. I have been given the gift of gab and that's just what it is. So we're gonna be doing a whole lot of talking around Welcome to the Black Family Therapy Podcast with Keon Moon, and I am Keon Moon, and we're going to be doing a whole lot of talking around here. This episode is very special to me. Um, It's very, very dear. I think that there are some things that, you know, we need to start discussing in our families. Here on the Black Family Therapy Podcast, we're going to talk about all the things that people try to keep hidden. This year marks seven years since my mother's death. And um, one of the things I can say is that I have learned so much since that time. The one thing I believe is that I grieved her death properly. And I believe that when you are able to move your life forward after experiencing any kind of parental death in a way that brings you to the best version of yourself, both in mind and in spirit, when you're able to go on with your life in a way that honors them and you find true happiness, then I think that is a signification or evidence of properly grieving death. In properly processing that grief, I have gained a greater perspective on things that I've been privy to all my life. We're going to get into that a little bit later. I once heard someone say, and, and I have, I myself have now become a believer in this saying. And nothing that is covered is healed. Everything has to be exposed. And that's what you all don't like. Y'all heard her. You got to put it on the table. At some point, you have to rip off the Band-Aid. You can't have a Band-Aid forever. There comes a time in your life where you have to see things from all perspective, where you may have just been privy to one perspective. When a thing occurs in your life, there are several factors that create different perspectives of that one thing that has occurred. And the older that you become and the more experiences that you have in life, then your perspective begins to change or shift. And that is what growth and evolution is. I want to share a story about power, influence, and ultimately death. As I reflect on the seventh year anniversary of my mother's death, I'm able to look at situations that affected me greatly as a result of her trauma, now I'm able to sit in a position and understand her perspective and the factors that I could not see. Therefore, I dedicate this episode to my mother, Sandra J. Moon. Let's go. Make sure you subscribe to the Black Family Therapy Podcast exclusively on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. 
That's the only place you're going to hear me. This particular story that I am going to share, I realize is directly connected to the struggle of my self-esteem. And a big part of grief is facing or re-examining the trauma or the pains that you may have experienced in your experience with the person. So I'm here to present all the facts, specifically facts that are unseen, unnoticeable, or not fully realized until much later. Ladies and gentlemen, these are the facts. And I want to be totally clear about what a fact is. A fact, indisputable proof, or evidence that support a truth. In late 1990, my mother's boyfriend killed himself in our house while my mother, my brother, and myself, you know, laid in the bed in pitch dark, literally. That was my first encounter with trauma, and I was seven years old. That was the last night that we stayed or lived in that house, in that neighborhood, again. And I'll explain this a little bit further as we go along in the story. So later in 1991, we moved and my mother found a duplex in a decent neighborhood that was, you know, practically across the street from her job, a daycare and sat right next door to the elementary school that my brother and I attended. So now this duplex was two-sided that we lived in. And so the side that we actually lived in, the windows were very low and easily accessible. And the other side of the duplex, their windows was very high. And you would have to almost climb up a brick wall in order to get to the window. That made it more difficult for access. So on this particular night, an intruder broke into our home, entering through our front living room window while my mother, my brother, and I lay asleep. The intruder actually closed the bedroom door, which was the room that my brother and I uh, shared, and then proceeded to rob and rape my mother. The police were called, and the house, specifically my room door, was dusted for fingerprints. And for many years, I really did not understand why this was a standout fact in all of this, which was the dusting of the fingerprints on my room door. But it was one of the things that my mother always harped on. And so you have to understand this was a time where, you know, rape kits and DNA, all that stuff was not developed as it is today. And so after police were called and and reports were filed, it led to the arrest of my father. And this is where my life literally shifted and changed. It had an emotional effect on, on me as a person. And I was internally tormented by the aftermath. And here's the thing for me. I had one parent 
who, which is my mother, who was firm about this is not your business. This has nothing to do with you. I will not discuss it with you. It has absolutely nothing to do with you. While the other side or the other parent, which is my father, was set on continuously making it about me and projecting all of the anger and the whatever he felt about the situation on me. So I want to paint a picture that is very clear. And as I said in previous episodes, you understand the dynamics that exist between my two families. All right, there is a power structure here. There was a picture that surfaced on Facebook and it was a picture of my great-grandmother at church um, seated on the mother's board. And for all y'all who don't know what a mother's board is, it's like a special seating in the black church for, you know, older women. <laughs> That's considered the mother's board or the mothers, the pillars of the church. And there was a top of a kid's head sitting next to her. The face nor the body of the kid was visible, just the top of the head. And I was tagged several times in the comments identifying me as the kid. And when I looked at the picture, I immediately knew that it was me. I knew for my head, I knew that was me. And one of the comments said, that was your seat every Sunday. That revelation was so transformative from that pic. For me, because my mother, who was an active and devout member of the same church, must have witnessed the same thing Sunday after Sunday. And understanding that my great-grandmother was giving me something that she could not give me, which was a family structure, an image, and a name that was respected from where we came from. And ultimately, that is what she wanted for me. Because what good mother does not want for their child more than what they had? Now, what you have to understand is that the picture was actually taken around the time that all of this was occurring. What I realize now is how this must have affected my mother's spirit to watch my great-grandmother, my grandmother, receive me, her child, and stamp me into their legacy and commemorate it through professional photos while my mother is believing my father, which is their son, their grandson allegedly burglarized her home and sexually assaulted her, knowing the depths that people will go to to protect their name and their image. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe to the Black Family Therapy Podcast right here on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Obviously, this became a legal matter and Early on, 
I took on the attitude of like, I don't know, this has nothing to do with me. It's between my parents. Because for me, it was just hard to think of my parents as liars. And that made me even more conflicted about what to believe. So the best mechanism that I could create for myself was to just, again, it had nothing to do with me. And that's the attitude that I kind of took on very early on at the age of eight when this was happening. I think it's important that we talk about how this actually became a case and a legal matter. This is a very peculiar how these events transpired. And I, I feel like I need to keep saying and reiterating that this was in 1991. This was pre-DNA, pre-rape test kits, pre-any of that type of evidence. I've already shared the influence and respect that my paternal, which is my father's family, had both in the community and in the church. So much that my great-grandmother was partly responsible for the pastor being and staying at this church. The influence ran deep. There has to be some type of evidence or eyewitness uh, testimony or witness testimony in order for a case to even be created. There has to be some form of evidence for there to be an arrest, for a judge to sign off on an arrest warrant. When the police was actually called the night that it happened, the police did take a statement from my mother. But of course, with every investigation there, you know, my mother needs to still go down and make a formal statement and do all the things, you know, in the legal system that needs to be done, right? Prior to that, my mother decided to go and seek counsel and an advice from her pastor. Why she decided to go to the pastor, uh, even though she knew you know, the influence of my paternal family, my father's family in this church. Prior to the suicide happening in our home, my mother was not a regular church goer. We went to church here and there. She would go to church. But I was very consistent in the church because I was spending a lot of time, of course, with my grandmother. And we went to church every Sunday. But there were some Sundays that I was with my mother and we did not attend church every single Sunday. But when the suicide occurred, and that being my mother's foundation, which was the church, that's where she sought help, where most Black women seek refuge. They go to something that will give them comfort. They would run to the church. She became more involved with the church. And so a year later, you know, she felt very comfortable with going to or seeking out the advice and counsel of her pastor. 
he gave her the advice that any figure of authority or person in power would give a woman who has experienced such traumatic events, which was to tell the police, go to the police, let them know who you believe did this. And that's what my mother did. And for the rest of her life, my mother maintained her story. It never changed. And she said she knew that it was my father because he closed the bedroom door to my brother and I's room. And she recognized his voice. Although she did not see him, she recognized the voice. And that was her conviction. This is something that would come up sporadically throughout my life. But this particular time, the last time that it came up by no account of my own, I felt forced to relook at it while stepping away from all sides and giving it an objective analysis, understanding the dynamics inside of my paternal family, which is my father's family. So I decided to do a little research of my own, something that I had not ever done. And I had a conversation with the DA's office. And this is the conversation. Thank you for calling the office, County District Attorney. We are currently assisting another caller at this time. Please hold. A representative will be with you momentarily. DA's office, can I help you? Uh, yes, I was calling because I have a few questions about a case that I believe that is um, with you, with your office, I was told. And okay. the case um, is about 32 years old. Oh, good Lord. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so it's a, <laughs> do you, yeah, um, let's see. If we did have it, it wouldn't be like it wouldn't be like a paper file. What what do you what kind of a case you think it is anyway? Well, it's it's a it is a felony case, and I believe it's a burglary, and it could be rape. I don't know all the details of it. I do have okay. the case number. Okay, and the people that's involved. What are you what are you checking on anyway? Or what are you? I, I just want to know the de- um, I just want to know the information, like what happened with the case. And the reason why I want to know is because I am these. These two people are, the people that are involved are my parents. So I'm just trying, and one of my, my mother is deceased now. So I'm just trying to kind of get an understanding of, you know, what happened. Because I was eight years old at the time. Yeah, it probably would be so limited. Of what You said it's about 30 years old. I mean, it's probably going to be like on an index card. It's going to be something like that small. I mean, I was just going to let you know that I did find what you, that, that, card that you well it is a card like i said it's always going to be the little card but it's, it has the two charges you spoke of and it says they were um not presented to grand jury which means the cases i mean the charges were dropped okay. or dismissed but it, it, but it didn't say like you didn't find any information as to why 
they were dropped because that's the no, main thing. No, no. Why. This on here, like I said, the, the older cases like this, it's like an index card. It's got his his name and the date, and it's got it's like typed on here with a typewriter. And it's got handwritten on here, uh, 324.92 NPGJ. It doesn't have, it didn't say why or anything. They never pursued it. Okay. Is it possible that the person that it happened to, which would have been my mother, could have made the decision not to go forward with it? Is that a possibility? Like you said, maybe she was not cooperating. Maybe, maybe they didn't have enough to go on. I, I'm, I don't know. Unless you could get something from the, the police department when they actually took the report, you know. Maybe mm-hmm. you could get that from them. Um, yes. I do have an arrest report number you could get. It's typed on here. It says arrest report. A-R-R space R-P-T. I'm assuming it's arrest report. That <laughs> means A-R-R space R-P-T. It looks like arrest report to me, but, you know. And then, you know, N-O for number. I would at least start with them. Okay. You know, and maybe they can give you like, I mean, I don't know if they would have a a copy of it somewhere. I mean, or maybe they'd have it on some kind of records over there, you know, since it's got a little age on it. You think they're going to have it somewhere over there. Yeah. Since they're the ones that took it out. Right. Okay. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate your call back. Okay. Have a good day, sir. All right. Bye-bye. Mother has always maintained that she decided not to pursue the case, not to go forward with it. That has always been her declaration. One of the main reasons why my mother moved from the neighborhood, which was the neighborhood she had lived in all of her life up until that point, um, was because during the time of the suicide, There was a word that I learned that stuck with me forever. And that word was autopsy. Mother was waiting for the autopsy because the people in the neighborhood was saying that my mother killed this man. That narrative took form. And truth be told, here we are you know, 30 plus years of the suicide happening in my home. And people, there are people who still believe that my mother murdered him. The autopsy report was crucial and critical because it would serve as a form of vindication for her to tell what really happened that night. So to imagine a woman who had to deal with ridicule and that public shame, and people would think that she is a murderer. I'm sure that was very taxing and tolling on her mental state. So here you are a year later, and you are standing in court for hearing of a burglary and sexual assault with your child's father. And the only person that is standing with you is your sister, while your alleged culprit is standing with an allegiance of women, a legacy of women, ready to take the stand in his defense against you. 
a woman, a mother, a church member, and you know the influence and the power that they have because you've seen it Sunday after Sunday and you've heard about it through the years and you know what they represent and you moving forward with the case, what that could not only do to you, but to your child and the uprooting of your life that must take place again. I can understand how one, a woman, a mother of two black boys would make the decision not to move forward with the case. So as we heard in the conversation with the DA's office, the case was never presented to the grand jury for indictment. It never went anywhere. Although there was an arrest, it never went anywhere. So by all accounts, if there is no DNA, because this is 1991, early 92, fingerprints can be easily disputed. The only other thing, ladies and gentlemen, that could move the case forward or keep it stagnant would be witness testimony. But if that witness is unwilling to provide her testimony in a trial form for public record, then a person can reasonably conclude that there was not sufficient evidence to present to a grand jury for indictment. And that is not an acquittal. That is not proof of innocence or guilt. It is simply just what it is. There was not enough evidence to indict. This story is so layered, and I could only give you a piece of the perspective that I have come to learn in my journey of healing. One of the things that I struggle with during my grief is if my mother was proud of me and I was just not confident or sure that my mother was proud of me. Sharing her story in such capacity and being a vessel for her perspective to be realized and to empower other people, I think that makes her proud. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Black Family Therapy Podcast with Keon Moon. I am Keon Moon. Make sure you subscribe to the Black Family Therapy Podcast exclusively on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. That's the only place you're going to hear me.